This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Of going to sleep yet because we have multiple hours of compelling, captivating, awe-inspiring conversation coming your way. And we're going to kick things off with my colleague and friend, veteran broadcast journalist, Dominic Carter. Looking pretty schnazzy as always, my friend. Thank you, sir. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. Although this uh, studio, which you know you do your show in before I come in... It is, it's a sauna in here. I, I would not have worn a sweater had I known I was going to be walking in to this kind of condition. Now, I just checked the thermostat. It says only 70 degrees. It feels like 80 degrees. It, it is warm in here. Yeah. It is warm. Do you like this temperature? Uh, the host before me uh, uh, put the temperature where it is, and sometimes I don't get a chance. You know, right. th- there's a minute break between the shows. I get it. Believe it's like, me. hi, hi, hi. Sit down. Boom. Let's go. I get it. Uh, hey, uh, wanna, I mean, we're going to have uh, David Patterson on and uh, talk about the Super Bowl. He knows a thing or two about the Super Bowl um, and sports in general. We'll pick his brain on some politics stuff. 123 million people watched the Super Bowl. I'm going to pose the same question to you that I posed to Robert Wall yesterday. Why is football such a big deal right now? It seems like at, at a time when baseball has waned in popularity, other sports have declined in popularity. NFL football just seems to be gaining and gaining in traction. Is it the gambling aspect of it? Is that people are so turned off by all this political stuff? What do you think it is? Well, growing up in New York City, uh, you know, I was a Yankees guy. I believe mm-hmm. you're a New Mets. York Mets. Okay, long suffering. So, 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 you know, so we had at shortstop Jeter, Jeter, number two, number two at third base, Alex Arod, uh, shortstop of going back, Willie sure. Randolph. I mean, you know, I can go through the whole lineup. Nowadays, I couldn't tell you anything about baseball mm-hmm. because the game is too long. Well, it's too long. Yeah. You know the real reason why football is so captivating? Nobody's going to admit it. The violence. Really? The violence. That's but, but why. Why isn't hockey a bigger deal? Is it, or have they curtailed the violence in hockey? I don't know. I never followed hockey too well, much. I have, have you ever been to a professional game? I, I have. It's been a while, though. I'm told it's one of the most exciting things you can do is go to a NHL game. Mm-hmm. I've never been. Really? I've never right, been. Well, we'll have to go. I, we'll I want to go out. to a college game. And you think they'll let me play? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you if you do the thing we were talking about where you re-enroll, you go back to school to go to law school, right. you then, can play for your, your law school college. <laughs> I wonder if uh, University of Phoenix Online has a... <laughs> That's a team that you could play for. <laughs> good. That that's good. Thank but you. I, but I really believe I really believe it's the violence. It's the it's the Mahomes. You know, air it out in one play. You know, he can go eighty yards. You, you know, him or Tom Brady. So I think when you when you put that together with the violence, nobody will admit that with the gambling and the excitement. And let's be honest. Look at how smart the NFL has been. They survived. Uh, that idiot act of Colin Kaepernick, right? right? He made a huge error, 
you know, taking a knee, whatever. He's entitled to do whatever he wants. But but you represent you, you represent uh, ownership in terms of a contract, just like you or I. Sure. We can't go around doing something stupid. We have contracts. Just we, don't tell Curtis. We, <laughs> we'd be fired tomorrow, you know. And so I think when you look at the the violence, when you look at the the gambling, when you look at they've even marketed the sport to women, right? That's what this Taylor Swift stuff. Oh yeah, no right? doubt about it. And so now you got women running around talking about uh, the, what's his name? Uh, the, the Travis Kelsey. Yeah, whatever. Right. The boyfriend, yeah. you know. And so I think they've been very smart at the marketing. Much more serious note, I mean, one of the things that you've been uh, on the cutting edge of is your coverage and your commentary on the crime crisis, not only in the New York area, but around the country. Very scary situation. We talked about this a little bit yesterday, but it was still unfolding. We didn't have all the details. This shooting in Texas at uh, Pastor Joel Osteen's church. Yes. I I said yesterday at the time that we didn't know the motive. It looks like the shooter at this church um, had Palestine written on the rifle and had severe mental health issues, also a a lengthy history of anti-Semitic writings. My question for you is, first of all— And then I I have one for you about this. Well, uh, so the one place that you kind of expect to be safe, even though we see incidents like this again and again, is in church. What should churches do? What should society do to make sure that this doesn't become a regular occurrence? I mean, I would have assumed that Joel Osteen's uh, church, because he's such a big star and has however many parishioners— that there was some security precautions well, to make did. sure they but, did. So they, tell us they, what, what the story did, was. He did have uh, security, and 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 I I gotta admit to you that I turned to uh, some of my spiritual advice from Pastor Olstein. I think that he's on point with a lot of things that he has to say about the power of forgiveness and 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 uh, controlling what comes out of your mouth. And he has some amazing sermons. He does uh, what what mega churches are doing is exactly what he did. Uh, he had several, and this is the only thing that stopped this woman, or mm. you'd have had a carnage situation there. He had several off-duty police officers working at the church. A Houston police officer, Chris, uh, Christopher Moreno, who was not related to the uh, shooter, and Texas Alcohol Beverage uh, Commission agent Adrian Herrera, and they returned fire. And fatally shot this woman uh, and and a young boy. We don't know if they shot uh, the young boy, but the young boy was fighting for his life, uh, shot in the head. And um, and the police chief there is blaming the woman for this. But here's the question. that So so what mega churches have to do, and it's sad that it's come to this, but if you ever see a pastor, a prominent pastor of a mega church, the person walking behind them nine times out of ten is an armed off-duty really? police. Yes. Huh, I didn't know that. It happens in mega churches all over the country. So they now have security staffs at, at mega churches. They have to because this has become a modern-day scenario. The question I have for you. I'm ready. So this woman, uh, mental illness, mm-hmm. right? But why is there so much hate? In the world, I know, I know, it's like a simplistic question, but I don't understand the hate element to have Palestine uh, written into the gun and all of her bad uh, writings about about the innocent people of Israel. Why is why is hatred at the level that I don't understand it, Frank? I really you know, don't. I, I think about this a great deal. 
and I've explored it on the radio a great deal, and I've yet to come up with a, a, a satisfactory answer myself. You know, some people say the media inflames this. Uh, some people say with people becoming increasingly insular, relying on social media to connect with people instead of, uh, you know, bowling leagues and rotary clubs, that uh, maybe you lose a little bit of what it's like to uh, connect with real people. I, I don't honestly know the answer, but uh, it seems to be getting worse. Now, maybe that's just my perception, but I don't think so. I, I don't is, know. It is getting worse. And, you know, we mentioned the shootings, right? So the one that occurred at Pastor Olstein's church uh, in Houston, uh, in New York City. And this has happened in cities all across America. People on their way home on the subway system, mm-hmm. the number four train, uh, at Mount Eaton stop, and uh, two groups of uh, kids get into it. What do they do? They pull out a gun. Uh, ten shots are fired, up to ten shots, and we have an innocent bystander. This is the New York shooting in yeah. the Bronx just hours ago. Innocent bystander dead. We have a 14-year-old girl, a 15-year-old boy, a 29-year-old woman, and two men ages 71 and 28, respectively, also were shot. The good news is that they are hospitalized in stable condition, but a 35-year-old man was shot and killed. Police say it appears that he was not the intended target. This is happening all over America. Now, I will say this, Frank. I have been a person that I believe in, in gun control, right? But... There are others, and I also support the Second Amendment. Right. But there are others that say so did the, Ronald Reagan, by the way, he okay. supported both of them. Right, things. and yeah. so there are some people that believe strongly that the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. That's exactly what happened at Pastor Olstein's church uh, Sunday mm-hmm. in Houston. So I am coming around. I I don't know if guns are the answer. But something has to give here. Uh, you, you said it. I mean, and what that is, I don't know. Hey, uh, you spent the better part of the last three or four decades hanging around with politicians, including a lot of members of Congress, not only from New York, but all over the country. We're now seeing with this announcement that uh, Congressman Mike Gallagher, who was a young man, I think he was only 39 years old, he's not running for re-election. There are now, I think, 33 or 34 members of the House that are not running for re-election, at least seven or eight senators that are not running for re-election. What do you think it is about Congress these days that no one wants to stay there? It used to be that the only way you'd get someone out of a safe uh, house seat is if they died. These days, you can't get people to stay. What's going on in Congress? Polarized country. Polarized country. We've got to get away from this. <laughs> there, there, There is a, a sentiment in each camp, right? So... Let's argument say, I'm a Democrat, all Republicans are wrong. I'm a Republican, all Democrats are wrong. And so you can't get anything done, right? You go in as a freshman, there's very little you can do. Uh, everybody wants the opportunity to go to go to Congress, but it's, you know, you, the money that's required uh, to run, it's just not, it's just not, I don't want to say this about our elected leaders, but it's just not a, a good business to go a good career mm-hmm. to go into people don't they don't see the you know you run as a candidate everything from your underwear size uh, becomes public knowledge you know it, it's really tough and you've got to go along to get along with the party and if you don't go along to get along you're primaried 
and it's the, from start to finish, right. the entire process. It's a whole new game these days. Yeah, and it really is the definition of a thankless job. You very rarely yes. have people coming over to you and say, hey, thanks for working seven days a week. We know how right. tough this is. Right. You're doing a great and, job. And flying, Everyone's got a problem. And flying back and forth between the district office and D.C. That's true. Let's not forget that part. Dominic Carter, thank you very much. Let's chat tomorrow. Let's do it tomorrow. Um, uh, you, you call Patrick Mahomes yet? <laughs> uh, are we, we going to be his new agents? You know, I... I have a tough time getting uh, celebrities on the phone that have not yet been indicted. Once they're indicted or convicted, they become then, a star. No, well, oh. then I'm able to reach oh, okay. them. Okay, okay, uh, okay. While okay. they're on the top of the okay. world, that's when I have a tough time. But Frank, Frank, I know you got to move on, but but look at this. If we get what eight to ten percent of what Mahomes pulls in, right? But what are we doing to get any of any percentage of what Pat Mahomes pulls in? We'll, we'll start doing a lot. We <laughs> were, we'll start. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Dominic Carter, you can check him out uh, every every night at uh, midnight Eastern on uh, 77 WABC in New York. If you're listening outside of the New York area, just go to WABCradio.com. Hey, I'll take your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Do you remember Bob Crane? Bob Crane was a really interesting guy. He was an actor, a musician, a radio personality, and DJ. But he's probably best known for starring in Hogan's Heroes. Well, there's always been a lot of mystery surrounding his death. He was bludgeoned to death in Arizona in an apartment while on tour for a, a dinner theater production. And there's, uh, the, you know, his friend was tried for the murder but was acquitted. And the case remains officially unsolved. John Hook is a journalist who has studied this case backwards and forwards and written about it. And we're going to try and get to the bottom of who killed Bob Crane. We're going to talk with John, uh, John Hook live from Arizona in just a moment. 800-848-9222. Uh, first, let me say hello to George calling from New York City. Hello, George. Hi. Hi, sorry. I'm not taking that. you away from anything, are you? Am right. I, George? No, 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 no. The, spe- the speaker phone was on because I was getting ready, you know, and turned off the radio. So I had the speaker phone on temporarily. Okay, so here's the reason why football is so popular. In my judgment, being a sports fan, you know, from soccer to tennis, you know, practically any sport, because quite often when you get involved with one sport, you tend to end up getting involved in all sorts of sports, you know, because they come your way willy-nilly. Now, the reason is this. Uh, when I was reading uh, Sophia, uh, Sophia Loren's uh, biography, she said one of her favorite sayings, you know, is anything uh, 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 displayed too much loses its value. So because baseball, 162 games, teams play with one another so many, many times, uh, same thing with hockey, same thing with uh, uh, NBA, etc. But with football, you play once, twice, three times a week, right? Thursdays, Sundays mostly, and Mondays, right? So uh, because of its uh, rarity comparatively, you know, and teams hardly play uh, each other more than once. Right, so there's, you know? a, there's a so specialness because you don't see these people play everywhere. Right, because of its 
minimal. Uh, right. If I miss the minimum. if I miss the Mets playing the Phillies tonight, I'll just be able to watch tomorrow's game. Absolutely, that's the, one of the main reasons. Oh, by the way, don't forget about uh, betting. Right. Well, betting. I mentioned that. I, I think that's a, a fair right, point, right. George. Thank right. you. Uh, I think that's actually a pretty good point. You know, uh, somebody made that point. Years ago, uh, you know, uh, Rush Limbaugh was obviously a big uh, radio talk show host, one of the biggest in the world. And I was working at one of the stations that he was on. And he basically, he, he was on Broadway. It was Rush on Broadway. And I went with some of my colleagues from the radio station. It was sold out. Sold out. And this was at a time when there were not many events that that radio station put on that sold out. And I um, and I said to another, uh, uh, you know, another talk show host at the time, I said, wow, this is quite a crowd uh, to come see Rush. He says, yes, because they never get to see him. And to be able to see him live and in person is something really special. It's not like so-and-so who does live events every week or every day. There's something different about, um, you know, about seeing it every day. 800-848-9222. We'll get into the death, the murder of Bob Crane with John Hook. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Smoking caterpillar has given you the 
love this song. Absolutely love this song. This, of course, is Jefferson Airplane, White Rabbit. Uh, this is not only a great song, uh, but a birthday bumper music selection from our friend Mary Riley, who is a great listener of this show, a friend of mine for probably about 25 years. She's a great lady and a very successful businesswoman, a very generous person, somebody that's been active in politics for a long time. She used to be the chairperson of the Republican Party in the community that I live in, but she's really loved by everybody, Democrats and Republicans alike, and a great person. So a happy birthday to Mary Riley. Thank you for all your support of me and this program over the years. Mary's someone who has had a lot of health challenges over the years, and she has just always had such an incredibly positive attitude, and um, she's somebody that I uh, greatly, greatly admire. So I think uh, she's just a a terrific person and uh, wishing her a happy birthday today and hope all of her wishes come true. Bob Crane is an interesting person. I think most of us know Bob Crane from the classic TV show Hogan's Heroes. And when you think about it, it really, it seems an odd fit for a sitcom. And yet Hogan's Heroes to this day remains one of the most watched um, sitcoms and beloved sitcoms of all time. But it takes place in a POW camp in in Nazi Germany. And it is not exactly kind of the kind of subject matter that you would think that is ripe for a sitcom. And yet, it not only was hilarious, it ran for 168 episodes, six seasons, um, and it is something that is just incredible. Absolutely incredible. We're hoping to get a hold of uh, John Hook. Oh, okay. So I, I'm, I'm trying to signal you guys and asking if we have him. We have him. John Hook is something of a legend in the uh, Arizona, specifically the Phoenix, Arizona media market. He's worked in a bunch of different places, but he's um, these days an anchor and reporter for Fox 10 in Phoenix, Arizona. But he's the author of a a terrific book, which a lot of people have talked about and referred to as sort of the definitive book on the mystery of of, uh, Bob Crane. The book, very simply, is called Who Killed Bob Crane? John, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I appreciate you staying up late with me. Frank, it's an honor to be on your show on the big WABC. And and a lot of other great affiliates around the country, too. But I appreciate uh, I appreciate that. And uh, you got a lot of fans out here as well. Uh, before we get into Bob Crane's death, tell me uh, or tell people that may not have watched Hogan's Heroes. Give us kind of the thumbnail sketch of who was Bob Crane as a performer, as a person. Why was he such a big deal? Well, first of all, he was a huge radio personality at KNX in L.A. And in fact, he cut his teeth in Hornell, New York, on a small station and in Connecticut in a small station. And they started noticing in the New York market that this guy, Bob Crane, with his madcap morning show, was siphoning listeners from the big CBS station in New York at the time. 
So they got this idea, we're going to find this guy and we're going to move him out to KNX in L.A. and get him out of here because he's hurting us. So they bring Bob Crane out in the mid-50s, I think it was 56, to KNX, and that show just explodes. And not only does it put Crane on the map, producers in Hollywood would wake up listening to this guy and they started thinking, hmm, what does this guy look like? Who is this guy? And he was interviewing all the luminaries at the time, Lucille Ball, Jack Lemmon, Ronald Reagan. He had everybody on that show. And it was such a crazy morning show. It was insane. The, the commercials he would do were nuts. He would turn them into a spoof. And people loved the guy. And pretty soon he started getting bit parts on, on television, the Donna Reed show, and eventually gets a reading for Hogan's Heroes. And his career just explodes. You know, so it's not unheard of for people to make that transition from radio personality to actor. Other people have done it. Uh, Jay Thomas comes most immediately to mind. But I don't know of anybody that has made this transition as successfully as Bob Crane did, becoming going from being a star radio personality to a star actor on one of the biggest uh, sitcoms there was in, in Hogan's Heroes. What was it about Bob Crane as an actor that made him so appealing? Or was it a function of luck? Right place, right time, right show? Yeah, it was all of that. But I think, as you know, the radio exposes you mm. and who you are. You can't hide when you're on there for four hours a day. You, you have to become comfortable in your own skin. And he had great comedic timing. He had honed it on radio, and it translated beautifully on television. He pretty much was the same guy on that show as he was off. He was a womanizer. He was charming. Mm. He was funny, quick-witted, bright guy, very talented. And, you know, he got that part. He had trepidation about it for all the reasons you, you listed at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, you know, thinking about a, a, a sitcom <laughs> framed in a POW camp in Nazi Germany, it's pretty crazy. But the public loved the irreverent humor and that it spoofed the Germans. People loved it. And by the way, very popular in Germany. Really? Yes. I, I People mean, got a kick out of it. I, I don't know that I realized that. I still watch it now. It's on MeTV and some of the other uh, networks, and uh, it's a lot of fun. I still find it fun. All right. So, so it's a great show. Uh, no doubt about it. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, John Hook. He's the author of Who Killed Bob Crane. You can learn more about the book and purchase it at whokilledbobcrane.com. John, uh, what, does, what, what is the official story about Bob Crane's death? What do we know for a fact that's not the subject of debate? He was bludgeoned in his apartment. Um, after Hogan's Heroes went off the air, he started touring the country doing dinner theater. You know, at this point, he's trying to pay the bills, and he's living off the fame of being Colonel Hogan. And people still flock to see him. This is 1978 in Scottsdale. So he's touring the country doing this dinner theater show, Beginner's Luck. It was a four-person cast. He was pretty much running the show and directing it as well. And it ends up here in Scottsdale in 1978, in June of 1978, for a two-week run. And um, near the final run of that show, the last few days, he turns up bludgeoned in his apartment, massive head injuries, hit by some type of blunt instrument twice and 
He never knew what hit him. The authorities, police, the medical examiner, they believe that Crane was asleep when he was bludgeoned. There was no forced entry into the apartment. So the working theory was whoever got in was let in willingly by Bob Crane. No sign of a struggle. He was asleep in bed when he was slammed in the left side of his head as he was sleeping in the fetal position. And uh, I know there was a trial and uh, the person that they put on trial for this murder was acquitted. Was that the correct uh, verdict in your view? Uh, Boy, that's up for debate because our DNA testing on the blood, which we tested some 40 years later, uh, came back with a very shocking finding. Um, it gets into some heavy forensics, and I don't know how deep you want to go, but basically the guy who was with Crane during that week and a guy who went out with him on the road palling around with him was John Carpenter. John Carpenter was introduced to Crane by Richard Dawson, who played Peter Newkirk on the Hogan's Heroes show. You know, you know him. And, and from, is that, that's the same Richard Dawson from Family Feud? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Another charming guy. Um, who really thought he should be the star of Hogan's Heroes, by the way. So there was always some tension Hmm. between Dawson and Crane. Dawson was uh, theatrically trained, was on the stage, felt like he was the talent, and who was this Bob Crane guy coming in, taking the lead role. So there was always some tension there. Um, John Carpenter was one of the first big national videotape salesmen for home video use. He introduced it to Red Skelton. He introduced it even to Elvis. So Carpenter had been around big stars before, and and he had um, he had taught Dawson about this technology. People wanted it in their homes, really reserved for the rich and famous at that time. It wasn't widely available to the public. And uh, Dawson introduces on the set of Hogan's Carpenter to Bob Crane, and they struck up a fast friendship, and. Carpenter taught Crane everything there was to know about videotape technology, home video, because Crane was at that time, he was a sex addict, even though there wasn't a formal definition for it at the time, he would womanize and he would take Polaroids of women in various states of undress and performing sex acts on him. And he found that really, you know, alluring. But then when he could put it on video, that was even more enticing. And so everywhere he went, the video camera, the tape decks were in tow, and Crane was doing, you know, his own home homegrown porn, um, you know, before Kardashian, before Britney Spears. You know, he was doing that way before all of those people came on the scene. There was a film about um, Bob Crane about 21 years ago, I saw it at the time, maybe 22 years ago, called Autofocus. A lot of the listeners may remember it. I'm sure that you have seen it. What did you make of this film, both as a movie and for its historical accuracy? I I thought it brilliantly captured the relationship between Crane and Carpenter, which was this, um, an odd relationship. You know, for two guys in approaching, you know, midlife in midlife, Crane was only a few weeks away from turning 50 when he was murdered. Carpenter was roughly the same age. They were both 49. It's a little odd to be hanging around with a guy 
when you're 49 hanging this, you know, hanging around this other guy who's 49, it was a little bit odd, but they shared this obsession with betting women and videotaping it. Hmm. And Carpenter was kind of the Pied Piper who went along with the whole thing, facilitated, taped some of this stuff and kept Crane, you know, plied with all the technology that he needed, cords, cameras, new gear. If something broke, he could fix it because he was a salesman at the time for a Kai. And so they end up together often on the road. Carpenter would meet Crane on the road, usually for four or five days a month. He'd show up where Crane was performing and they'd hang out. They'd try to bed women and uh, were usually quite successful. On this trip, Carpenter was not successful. On this trip to Phoenix, to Scottsdale, Carpenter actually stayed in a different place. He didn't stay with Crane. And Crane's son, Bob Jr., who wrote the foreword for my book, um, he really laid out that his dad had gotten tired of Carpenter hanging around. Hmm. He said he was becoming a pain in the ass. He was becoming like kind of a clingy woman, to, to put it mildly. And that Crane was going to make some changes because some of this was starting to get out because he was in the middle of a bitter divorce with his wife at the time, who was Patty, who was Fraulein Hilda on Hogan. They met on the set. He left his first wife and married her. So his second marriage is falling apart and his life is kind of spinning. And some of this is ending up in the tabloids and it's hurting his ability to get work. He was working for Disney at the time doing uh, uh, one of these movies for Disney. And some of this stuff was getting out and his agent was telling him, you know, this stuff is going to hurt you. So Crane was trying to calm it down. And the, and the feeling was at the time among police, among people who knew Bob, that Bob was going to emancipate himself from John Carpenter and that that might have led Carpenter to want to kill him. So, um, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, John Hook. He studied the um, murder of Bob Crane backwards and forward. It's all covered in his book, Who Killed Bob Crane, which you could check out at whokilledbobcrane.com. So what was the jury thinking when they acquitted John Carpenter? What was the uh, lack of evidentiary findings that they found to be exculpatory? Well, imagine during October of 1994, what was going on at that time. O.J., right? O.J. Simpson. O.J. Simpson. And all we heard about over and over was DNA, DNA, DNA. So the jury, they're deliberating and taking this case on right at the height of OJ and all they're hearing about is DNA. But at that time, the DNA, which had been done and tested in the early nineties, this was DNA in its infancy. They, the jury's waiting for it. Where's the DNA to prove that blood in John Carpenter's car came from Bob Crane. We know that blood in John Carpenter's car that was found was type B positive blood. That's only found in 9% of the population. Bob Crane was B positive. So right there, you've got a very strong link. But the jury was like, well, that's fine. We know it's B positive, but how do we know it's from Bob Crane? And because of OJ happening at that exact same time, they're waiting for the linchpin, somebody to come forward and, and say, not only is it B positive, but the DNA says this blood in John Carpenter's rental car is from Bob Crane. And police surmise that blood got there from the murder weapon being leaned up against the passenger door 
and depositing streaks and smears on the felt, on the door, and the vinyl. And so when I came on board in, what, 2016, my theory was, could we find that original blood from the case and retest it using modern DNA science? That was the entire predicate for my book, for the special we did on it. And so we got permission from the Maricopa County Attorney's Office down here to go in and test this stuff. And Frank, I'm telling you, as a reporter, this just is never done. When I went to Cellmark, which did the original testing on Bob Crane's blood back in the 90s, and it came back inconclusive because, you know, the stuff was very crude back then. They told me, they said, we've never had a reporter submit cold case DNA for testing. So we had to get unprecedented access and agreement from the Maricopa County Attorney's Office down here to let us do this. And fortunately, Bill Montgomery, the the county attorney at the time, he told me, he said, look, we tried our best. We put Carpenter on trial. He was acquitted, mainly because of a lack of DNA. If you guys can learn something that we couldn't and give the family some resolution, great, do it. Obviously, I know you're a journalist in Arizona, and this is where the murder took place. But what was it that sparked your interest to want to dive uh, so deep into this case, especially so many years after the trial? I mean, I think a lot of people would say, all right, jury came to its verdict. Uh, They they made their decision. Let me move on and find uh, other things to investigate. What sparked your interest in this case specifically, John? It was an interview with Bob Crane Jr., who was coming out with a book. This was in 2015. I interviewed him at the station about his book. We talked about his father. We really hit it off, made a connection. Bob Jr. is an amazing guy. And I just felt in him an incredible sadness that he did not have an answer about who killed his father. And so after that interview, I started thinking about it in the days and weeks that followed. And I just kind of was ruminating on the whole subject. And I thought, boy, you know, where is all that evidence from that case? Is it still around? And then I started thinking about DNA. And I'm thinking, boy, they tested this stuff in the early 90s. They got nothing. But DNA has come light years. They used to need a sample that was the size of a dime of blood to test for DNA in the early 90s. Now they were at a point where a touch of a finger, the head of a pen was enough to test. And I thought, how about if we go around again and give this another whirl, take another bite of the apple and see if we can get some answers. And that's what we did. And fortunately they let us do it. The, so you believe then it sounds like that the most likely scenario is that he was killed by John Henry Carpenter. Yes. I think the preponderance of evidence shows that. Um, mainly because of Carpenter's actions after the murder. Keep in mind, Carpenter and Crane are palling around. Carpenter is supposed to be taken to the airport that morning on, on June 29, 1978, by Bob Crane. It was in Crane's day planner next to his bed, which was spattered with Crane's blood and brain tissue next to his bed. Uh, that was the plan, and the plan suddenly changed, and John Carpenter left in haste that morning early to go back to California. And then after he gets back to California in the afternoon, he starts making some very odd phone calls. 
one to Bob Crane's apartment asking if Bob's around. The cops were there at the time. He called twice. Then he called the Windmill Dinner Theater where he was, where Crane was performing, said, is Bob performing tonight? And they said, yes, but they knew something was up. The people at the windmill had caught wind that something was going on at Bob Crane's apartment. They were kind of rattled. They didn't know what the extent of it. And then he calls a second time to the windmill and tells the woman, you sound sad. It's a fishing expedition. And the police believe that these phone calls were Carpenter trying to find out whether Bob had been discovered, his body, and how far along they were in their investigation. And the cops found it very, very strange. Not only that, Carpenter calls Bob Crane Jr., Bob's son, and says, hey, I'm back in California. If you need anything, let me know. And, and Bob Crane said Carpenter had never made a call to him like that before. He found it so odd And it distressed him that Bob Jr. called Bob Crane's apartment looking for his dad and a co-star who was with Bob uh, discovered his body, picked up the phone. The cops told her to pick up the phone and she was instructed to say that Bob was out and that he wasn't around. So Bob Jr. just said, "Okay," but he called his dad's apartment because he was so distressed by Carpenter's phone call. So all of those kinds of things make you wonder what the heck is going on. Interesting. That's all circum that's all circumstantial. But what we wanted to dive into was the DNA and that's what we did. Uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking about the uh, passing, the tragic passing of uh, Bob Crane, probably best known. I don't think there's any question that he was best known for his work on Hogan's Heroes. Colonel Hogan, I am very busy today. Dispatches from Berlin. What is it? I'm here to make a complaint on behalf of my men. Oh, a complaint. Not sufficient entertainment, perhaps. No, oh, you're funny enough. <laughs> or the food you take from German mouths. I suppose you would prefer some wine or some caviar. Matter of fact, I'm very fond of caviar. I don't want to have you go to any trouble, but if you should happen to be near a post office when they transfer you to the Russian front... Uh, we're talking about his murder with uh, with John Hook, who has studied this case backwards and forward. Hey, John, whenever I delve into one of these unsolved uh, cases from years ago, the question that I'll get from at least one cynical listener or caller is inevitably, who cares? It's decades later. Uh, John Carpenter is dead. Bob Crane is dead. There's no chance even for a civil judgment against John Carpenter. What's the sense in people like you and me still have this out and still trying to find out the truth about what happened. Why not simply let sleeping dogs lie? People don't like um, unanswered questions and loose ends. It's just a human nature. They want to know what happened, whether it's in a court of law, whether it's in a book, whether it's in a documentary. Uh, they want to know what the heck happened. They don't like loose ends generally. And I think about Jean Benet Ramsey. This is the same sure. kind of thing. And, and I look at Bob Crane's murder in the same way. I mean, the investigators down here would tell you um, that Bob Crane's murder down here was kind of our Kennedy assassination. So many theories, so many hypotheses of what happened. But in the end, it's actually a very simple murder case. It just got very complicated.
Well said. Uh, John, I find your work just really convincing and impressive on this. I hope people check out the book. They can do so at WhoKilledBobCrane.com. John, thanks for staying up late with us. Appreciate it. Frank, a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's my pleasure. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you can give me a call at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Thank you. Shadows grow so long. Until the top of the hour. Uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, we're going to get your calls on the Bob Crane situation in just a moment. I'll tell you what is what is grinding my gears a bit. You know, uh, I don't know if you remember, but when we had a uh, rental car, because we were having some car repairs done on the seat or something, they gave us a rental car, and it didn't have the Easy Pass stickers up there. You'd have to hold our Easy Pass up. So when my wife or I would drive, we would do exactly that. So I guess one time what happened is my wife was driving in New Jersey, and she forgot to hold the Easy Pass up, and we went through at all. And then we get something in the mail from the New Jersey Turnpike Authority saying we owe $4.20 in tolls. Okay. But in addition to the $4.20 that they're charging us, they want to charge us $50.30 as an administrative fee. And my wife says, all right, well, this is on you. You can handle this. And I said, I'll be damned if I'm going to spend $50 for the privilege of paying a $4.20 toll. So I sent the good folks over at the New Jersey Turnpike Authority a check for $4.20. And then they send my wife another notice that we still owe this money. And now she gets a text message the other day that they've handed this over to Collections. That Collections is now in charge of collecting this $50. 
So I wrote to the Turnpike Authority. I wrote to Easy Pass of New York, which is my easy bet. I wrote to Easy Pass of New Jersey, which is the entity that I guess is in charge here. And I said, look, this is crazy. I'm happy to pay the toll, but I'm not going to pay the penalty. And I and I click in the thing on their website that says dispute violation. It says, sorry, you can't dispute the violation anymore because it's in collections. I'd love to know what to do about this. Has anybody ever experienced something like this? Because I will tell you right now, I'm not paying $50 because we didn't pay a $4 toll. Absolutely no way, no how. I, I Let them pry it from my cold, dead hands. But uh, no way. I mean, what happens if we just ignore this collections person? The collections person I know is buying debt just for pennies on the dollar. Can we just ignore it? I mean, uh, or is that a disastrous situation for my wife's credit, which she is then going to hold me responsible for? Or can can I work something out with the collections people? I don't know. If you've ever experienced this, let me know. Hey, a lot of people very eager to chat about uh, Bob Crane and his murder and John Hook's theory of the murder. Mark is in North Carolina. Hello, Mark. Yeah, hey, Frank. Uh, good morning. It's great to talk with you. I just wanted to give you a bit of advice on the collections thing. Sure. Uh, never pay once it goes to a collections agency. The, the damage has already been done. And if you pay, even if you pay a settlement on it, it's not going to uh, help you. So, ah, okay. So your advice yeah. is just to ignore it? Ignore it. Yeah, it'll go away. So they'll they'll find another, you know, because they get a percentage of basically what they collect Got from it. you. So Got it. Okay. It, it's not worth it to them after a while. But, yeah, the dam- whatever damage, I doubt there's any damage. But if it has been done, it's been done. Got so, it. Okay, good. But, uh, this is, this yeah, is my kind to, of answer. I like this, Mark. Thank yeah, you. yeah. I just wanted to say uh, I, I was visiting uh, a friend of mine in Scottsdale, and we were out driving around, and, uh, you know, she said, uh, are you a Hogan's Heroes fan? I said, oh, yeah, I love that show, you know, when I was a kid. And uh, we drove by these sort of rundown apartments, and she pointed out the exact apartment where Bob Crane was murdered. It's still there. And uh, he was not in the lap of luxury, Frank. I mean, this this place was not that nice. I think he was probably, you know, probably at the end of his resources, you know, doing the mm-hmm. dinner theater circuit. And, I mean, it's not, you know, in, in the least bit, you know, luxurious at all. Interesting. Well, uh, um, I mean, do you have a theory on the murder based on what you heard from John? Yeah, I liked what he had to say. Uh, I've always thought myself that Carpenter did it. And mm-hmm. I think with, like he said, with modern DNA testing, it could have been proven. But, you know, now it's too late. Yeah. Mark, thank you for the call. Thanks for the thank advice you. on the toll. Those of you that are holding, I'll try and get to you after the top of the hour. Still to come, we've got a lot more fun to be had, a lot more information to behold. Trust me, you'll see that I'm telling the truth. Keep asking questions.